2, Philippians 2. We're going to begin our reading at verse 12, and then we'll read through verse 18 of this chapter. Philippians 2, verse 12, what we hear now is God's Word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Here we are in the reading of God's holy word. Well, we continue to study this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Uh, we have seen that Paul begins this first section of his letter with two main concerns. That first main concern, that Christ be proclaimed. He says that in chapter 1, verse 18. What then only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That was Paul's first concern that Christ be proclaimed, and secondly, that Christ be honored. He says in chapter 1, verse 20, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That Christ be proclaimed, and that Christ be honored, not only in the life of Paul, but also in the life of the church, which is why he goes on in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that he be honored in you. And Paul then, from chapter 1, verse 27, spells out what that looks like. What does it mean to honor Christ, the living a manner worthy of the gospel? And he does that through chapter 2, verse 18. We come uh, this evening to the end of the first main section of this letter. And the words that we have in chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. It is a text that has often been misunderstood. 
It is a text that those who want to hold to some type of works righteousness will certainly take us to in terms of our justification. Look, Paul says right here, you have to work out your own salvation. It's up to you. Others have seen this text not in terms of our justification, but rather in terms of our sanctification. And this was the understanding that I was brought up with. This text speaks not about justification, that somehow our works contribute to our salvation, but rather, having been saved, we are now to live in a way that is pleasing to God, working out the implications of our salvation. As I said, that was the interpretation I was brought up with uh, through men like William Hendrickson and other commentaries, uh, giving that fundamental biblical truth. And that truth is biblical, that we need to be engaged in our sanctification. But as I have worked with this text this past week, I have come to an understanding different than that. I want to, be, I want to assure you this does not come out of my own head. Uh, this is an understanding um, I've been convinced uh, by the exegesis of scholars like Ralph Martin and Gordon Fee that this text is more nuanced than that. This text is not primarily directed to us as individuals. But Paul, as he has been and continues now, addresses the church as a body. He addresses them as the body of Christ. And, and so we're going to look at this text this evening and see how this text directs them as a body, as the church, and how they are, what it means for them to work out their salvation. What is that instruction to the church? As I said, many have seen this um, as a text that deals with individuals. Work out your own salvation. That it's a matter of our justification. If you talk to anyone with an Arminian understanding of Scripture, they will certainly take you to this text. Well, well, before we look at any other of the contextual issues, we just have to look at the words first. Paul says, work out your salvation. He does not say, work toward your salvation. He does not say work for your salvation. So even at the, at the very word level, this text does not say what the Arminian would have it say. It doesn't say work at your salvation, work for your salvation, work toward your salvation. And certainly that understanding would not fit with the whole context of Scripture. A text like Romans chapter 3, a text like Ephesians chapter 2, which puts our, our works uh, having nothing to do with God choosing to save us. So it doesn't speak individually about our justification. As I said, many see this as a call to individuals in their sanctification. Work out what God has worked in you. Now at least... At least that understanding fits 
the broader context of Scripture. Because we certainly are called to, uh, to be engaged in the process of sanctification, to live in a way that pleases God. And while this certainly is a biblical truth, I don't believe that is the truth taught in this text. In our Wednesday night class, we've been talking about context and reading Scripture context. And there are some times where truth is given, but it's not the truth of this text. It's the general truth of Scripture. I believe to see this as an individual reference to sanctification misses the flow of Paul's argument. Paul is addressing them as the church, as the body of Christ, and addressing the fact that they need to be one. There was a sense, as we read this letter, that there's some disunity within the body. Go back to 127, where he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what Paul wants for them. Firm. One spirit, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Be one. Be the body of Christ. That's Paul's argument. He, he expands on that in chapter 2. We saw that last time we looked at this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then gives us that beautiful picture of Christ, who did just that, looked to the interest of others. In light of all that, Paul says in verse 12, therefore, work out your own salvation. Just a couple things to take note of. While in English, uh, the word you can certainly be used for an individual or for a group, I can refer to you as an individual or you, you should do this. In Greek, it's very, very clear. Uh, Paul is not talking to them as individuals, but he uses the plural you here. This is something that you, as a body, should be engaged in. And he says, work out your salvation. Salvation, that word, does not always have soteric effect. It does not always refer to our ultimate salvation through Jesus Christ. In fact, earlier in chapter 1, the end of verse 18, Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my, our text says deliverance, the word is salvation. This will turn out for my salvation. Now Paul certainly doesn't mean that his suffering somehow contributes to his soteric salvation. Salvation. 
And I would suggest he's using that word the very same way here in chapter 2, verse 12, when he says, work out your salvation, not a soteric context, but an ethical context. He is calling on them to live as the body of Christ. Obviously, there was some problem, which is why he keeps coming back to this. You need to do this. You need to do this. You're not doing it now. You're not of one mind now, of one spirit now. You're not striving side by side now. So you need to fix the problem. If I can put it in a very vernacular language, that's what Paul's saying. Now it's time for you, you as a body, to fix the problem you're having. Not an individual context, but a corporate context. You are to look like the people God has called you to be. You are to look like that because He is working in you for His good pleasure. The context is not individual, whether justification or sanctification, but the context is corporate. Be whom God has called you to be. His church, His body, one mind striving side by side. He says, do this, verse 14, do these things without grumbling or disputing. And the words that Paul chooses to use in verses 14 and 15 are again words that speak of a corporate context. He's not saying don't individually grumble. But he's saying that as a body. Now why do I say that? Because the terms that Paul uses here, do this without grumbling or disputing, are words that are used back in the Old Testament. Remember, Paul was a very good scholar. Paul knew the Old Testament well. And so he pulls these terms out to remind them of times when Israel, as a body, was grumbling and complaining against God. I think of a text like Exodus 15, verses 20 through 22, excuse me, 22 through 24. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? That's the very same word. They grumbled. Not, not as individuals, they corporately grumbled against Moses. And then in, in chapter 16, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled, a corporate grumbling against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Chapter 16, verse 6, so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it's the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your, plural, grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to your full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, not individuals, corporately, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Paul calls to mind 
these instances in the past when not individual Israelites grumbled against God, but when as a body they complained and grumbled against God. He says, you are to do this without grumbling or disputing. And then look, look, notice verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Again, Paul calling to mind Old Testament language. We read in Deuteronomy 32, 32 verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. The God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Speaking of corporate Israel, they are no longer his children because they are blemished, a crooked and twisted generation. Paul says in verse 15, that you may be blameless, innocent children without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul calls to mind these corporate instances of Israel not acting like the people of God not being who God had called them to be. He uses these corporate terms to remind them that they are brothers and sisters in the Lord and they are called to live together as the body of Christ. That's his motive, that they would live the way God intended them to live. And so he says, do this that you may shine like lights in the world. Not only that in their individual life they shine as a light, but as a body, that the church shines like lights in the world. That's the contrast he's making between the church and the world. This corporate entity, this corporate entity. He tells the church to look like the church. And when the church looks like God intends, it will be like a bright light in the world. Unfortunately, so often, the church, rather than being a light to the world, starts to look like the world. Rather than shining like a light, like a beacon, it gives in. And it begins to look like the world looks. Examples of that. When someone is looking for a minister of the word, in, in the broadly evangelical church, the first criterion is not, can he preach the gospel? The first criterion is, is he a good administrator? Is he a good organizer? He's going to be the CEO of this corporation. We have to have a, a good administrator to be our, our senior pastor. We, the church takes on these worldly characteristics. The church is not, not a democracy. We sometimes import that into the church, but we're not. We are ruled by Christ through the eldership, and we shouldn't look like a democracy. We shouldn't look like we all have a voice in what goes on. That's not how Christ runs his church. He runs his church through the eldership. And Paul says, look like that. 
look like that? The deacons. The primary qualification for a deacon is not, can he add a column of numbers? That's not the primary qualification. He is there to minister the mercy of Christ. And there are times when our deacons will make decisions of helping people that from a business point of view are absolutely the wrong decision. And that should not surprise us. Because the church is not a business in that sense. The deacons are not the corporate officers, the financial officers. They are here to minister the mercy of Christ. Look like the church, Paul says. Look like that body of Christ that you are, and you will shine like a light in the world. Now, how do they do that? He says, look like the church, shining like a light, holding fast to the word of life. Don't give in. Don't give in, Paul tells them. Hold fast to the word, not to the world. And there could not be a more timely admonition for us as well. That we hold fast to the word of God and in so doing shine like a bright light in the world. The world tries to, to redefine everything to fit its own desires. The world tries to redefine what marriage is. It is simply a commitment between two people. It doesn't matter who those people are. But we say, no, the Bible has given us definitions. The Bible has given us standards for what marriage is. Hold fast to these things. Don't give in to the world. The world redefines what a family is. A family is, is any unit of people in any connection with each other. We say, no, there is a, there's a biblical understanding of what family is. The world, the world doesn't even know what it means to be a man or a woman anymore. That, that fundamental distinction is being lost and it's mind-boggling. I saw a, an advertisement on TV this past week for some medical product. And so you think, okay, this is a medical product and these guys would know what they're talking about. And the advertisement said, uh, this is good for this, this is good for that. This is not good for those who were assigned female at birth. Do you believe that? The world doesn't even know what a man or a woman is anymore. And into that darkness, the church can shine the light. The light of the truth. Of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. To, to live in a way that glorifies God. To bring glory to Him, not only individually, but also corporately. The church should be that, that place that is alluring and desirable. That place that people look to and say, there's something different going on there. It doesn't give in to the ways of the world. They, 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 they hold on 
to some sort of truth. And Paul says when we live that way, when we are that kind of church, that church that God has called us to be, the result is joy. And we've seen already in Philippians the theme of joy kind of flows throughout this book. Paul says at the end of verse 16, Hold fast the word of Christ, the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud. I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now when Paul talks about being proud, of course he's talking about proud of what Christ is doing in him. He says, I, I can rejoice because my labor is not in vain. You are a church. You are what, Paul, what God has called you to be. And Paul says, I have exerted myself. I'm writing to you. So you can be that church, that body that God has called you to be. He says in verse 17, even, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Even if I'm to be put to death, Paul says, if you live the way God has called you as the body of Christ, I will rejoice. I will be glad. For you are doing what Christ wants you to do. And he says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. When you see Christ at work in your midst, when you are living as brothers and sisters in the Lord, striving together, side by side, one in mind, one in purpose, when you are the church of God, there's joy and there is rejoicing. And the same truth that Paul declares to the Philippians, he, he declares to us as well. We are called to be not only the individuals God wants us to be, we are called to be the church he wants us to be. That church which shines like a light, that church which is alluring, because there is this sense of joy, there is this sense of unity, there is this sense of peace. When the world looks at the church, and if all they see are the arguments and the disagreements, they will say, why would I want to be a part of that? I can have that in my home. I can have that in my office. Why would I join a church that's divided that way? Now, I'm not saying that there are things on which we should not take a stand. But too often, too often we make the secondary issues into primary issues. And the witness of the church is blunted by our own sinfulness, by not being the body God has called us to be. We have the most glorious message as the church to bring to the world. We declare Jesus Christ, one who is a sinner's Savior, one who has come down and washed us and cleansed us and brings us into covenant with himself and covenant with each other. And once again tonight, Christ calls out, embrace him by faith, know him, know who he is, what he has done for you, and then don't live as an individual Christian on an island somewhere but be a part of the body. Be engaged, striving, side by side. One mind, one hope, one direction. That's God's call to us. To live as the body of Christ. Paul says, work out this problem going on in the church. Work out this lack of corporate identity and be who God has called you to be. 
God has called us as his church, as his people. May he give us the grace to work together in love, striving side by side to be a glorious light into the darkness that we see around us. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, we do thank you and praise you for the beauty of your word. A word that truly does call us to live in a way as individuals that brings glory and honor to you. But we are not simply individuals side by side living on our own. You bind us together through Jesus Christ into your church. Lord God, help us to live as that body. Help our church to be alluring to others, to be a light in the darkness, holding fast the word of life, not giving in to the ways of the world. And will you use that church, O oh God, to bring glory to yourself, for you are at work through the body, through your people. Hear our prayer, for Jesus' sake, amen.